Friends of Jackson Elias, a regular podcast about Call of Cthulhu, horror films, and horror gaming in general. I'm Paul Fricker. I'm Scott Dalwood. And I'm Matt Sanderson. And in today's episode, we have part two of our show concerning non-player characters. Today, we discuss portraying non-player characters. To life, to, to life, life, I'll bring, bring them. them. We'll bring all these dead men to life. <laughs> yeah, we didn't rehearse that. Well, <laughs> Well, as opposed to the rest of our carefully crafted podcast. (laughs) Pay no heed to the man behind the curtain. But before we launch into that, we have news. Yeah, Games Expo took place, was it last week? The week before recording. Anyway, it doesn't matter because you could be listening to this any (laughs) time. But recently there was Games Expo, the big game show in Birmingham, England. And I was on a panel with Mike Mason and Lynn Hardy. And what was the panel about? The theme was Running Horror Games. And you used our uh, fancy new portable recorder that we've bought uh, to actually record this. I did. I almost figured out how to use it as well. <laughs> <laughs> it took me a while to get the file off, but hopefully next time it will be more efficient. But yeah, so that's gone out as a bonus episode. So yeah, check your RSS feed if you haven't done so already, and you should find a little goodie there waiting for you. Now, after a bit of a lull... My Kickstarter feed seems to have gone a bit crazy, as there are various Cthulhu projects either finally hit Kickstarter or about to hit Kickstarter. And I got a stretch... Oh, not a stretch goal notification. Well, it was a stretch goal notification, but I was more thinking an update, that mentioned, now we are the sons of God. And a rather familiar name in there. <laughs> yes, so we mentioned the Cthulhu Dark Kickstarter last episode. Uh, in fact, we had an interview with Graham Walmsley about it last episode. What has happened since then is it's been announced that I am writing one of the stretch goals for it, uh, which is a mini-campaign called Now We Are the Sons of God. It's for the London 1851 setting, and it's, um, yeah, I, I'd say it's bleak. It's uh, it's three linked scenarios, uh, thematically linked, set amongst uh, sort of the working poor of London, and it's about sort of the perhaps the the false hope that the mythos can offer when you feel like you've got nothing else to lose but of course you've always got something else to lose well the big news there was that matt's kickstarter feed went quiet for a while <laughs> I, I can't that's the bit i can't believe yeah, never cool. mind the mythos i can believe that easier it's buying a house it does shit to your bank account really it does. <laughs> But no, but there has been honestly quite a bit of a lull. Um, there hasn't been many projects, and it seems like buses, they're all finally coming along at the same time. Cause, um, in the course of the next week, I believe, the King and Yellow, or the Yellow King role-playing game from Pelgrane will become, uh, be going live. Uh, so Cthulhu Dark's just gone live. Um, there's also a few other rumblings from Arc Dream that there's projects on the horizon that I'm interested in. Um, they're planning on doing a deluxe version of Chambers' King and Yellow um, and releasing that maybe with an annotated format so yeah there's there's a few bits coming hmm oh, and of course one that i know scott will love as well that the uh the c is for cthulhu plush uh people tried to do hey! a uh, tried to do a glow in the dark uh sweet dreams cthulhu plush but the problem being that they couldn't get it ready in time so they did a rainbow version instead so I, I, i've got a rainbow one coming that yeah. I can hang on, it's with. actually called sweet dreams cthulhu what yeah. they figured out that they had not gone high enough on the irony sticks and they had to call it <laughs> fucking sweet dreams cthulhu it's like cthulhu has problems with no, yeah. not being able to sleep at night 
night. So he goes to his good friend Howard Lovecraft to for ways that he can try and calm down at night. We need to kickstart a, a Scott Dorwood plush. <laughs> He's got a little... just a drawstring that says "fucking blushes, fucking blushes." <laughs> <laughs> his little beard gonna, and hair. Well, and... I was about to say you could weave it entirely out of cast yeah. off hair from my beard. Well, that'd be like the top level <laughs> pledge. Yeah. <laughs> Pay five grand here, Dawood hair. <laughs> Life be- size. <laughs> <laughs> this beard sheds more than my cats do. <laughs> There's something very wrong about a life-size plush of Scott with real hair, though. <laughs> <laughs> the horror. The horror. And we're recording this the day after we met up with one of our listeners. Um, well, Matt and I, for the first time, uh, Paul has, has met him before. But Corey Welch, um, who some of you may know from uh, Skype of Cthulhu. He's, for example, recently done a fantastic uh, run-through of Blackwater Creek, uh, which I think yeah is is either just about to finish or just finishing at this stage. I, I really encourage you to go out and listen to those because they're great recordings. Uh, but yes, he came all the way up to Milton Keynes. Uh, all the way I'm... from Chicago. <laughs> yes, well, via London. Yeah, he's over for work for a bit. Uh, and uh, yeah, he arranged to meet us up in Milton Keynes, and we went out to uh, that great British establishment, the Curry House. Mm-hmm. I'm still recovering from the Naga Curry. You did go for the <laughs> hottest one on the menu, Matt. Yeah, it was pretty good. It was the upper level of my comfort zone, and then this morning happened. Yeah. Mm. Well, yeah. Thank you. Okay. Thank, thank, you, thank you for sharing that with everyone, Matt. <laughs> Just you did you offer me a bite, and I was like, no, I'm fine. I'm really fine. You want a sound bite of Johnny Cash right about here, and that'll be fine. <laughs> Too much information. But yes, it was fantastic meeting you, Corey. Thank you again. And yeah, thank you for coming all the way up to Milton Keynes. And yeah, great meeting you. Mm-hmm. And we have some sad news as well. Mm. Um, author and friend Alan Bly. Author of Crimson Letters in the 7th edition rulebook, um, Deadlight. Yeah, he sadly passed away a couple of weeks ago after a short illness. And, yeah, it was kind of a, a shock to all of us, I think. Yeah, it was all very sudden. Whenever I met him, he always struck me as a really nice guy that I'd always felt that I wish I'd spent more time in his company because yeah. his company was always fun. You know, I remember sitting with him at gaming conventions, after, you know, in the bar after games. Uh, he was a great GM and a great author and has written no end of stuff, including novels uh, for Fantasy Flight and Games Workshop and so on. Yeah, he's probably much better known in the Warhammer field, particularly Warhammer 40k. Yeah. Yeah. So, uh, a sad loss. Yes. We have a bit of excitement. Uh, We have been sent something in the post. We have been sent a mysterious box from the far-off land of the Americas. And uh, From Jason Janicki, right? Here it is. Yes. It's quite a big box. It's um, It's a FedEx large box, in fact. Yeah. Yes. Let me... uh, Oh, I've just got yes. some scissors and I'm trying to... You're trying to butcher the box, right. is what well, you're doing. No, 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 I'm opening it carefully. <laughs> but, yes, uh, th- there is a certain degree of trepidation here, I think. I mean, obviously, it's... it's uh... Not least, because we've forgotten to open it on the last two shows. <laughs> well, I, I was thinking more along the lines of how uncoordinated you were being with those scissors, Paul. <laughs> what yeah. do you mean? You're going to put I'm, someone's eye out. I, I am worried that you're also angling the box yeah. towards me as you yeah, do yeah. this. It's fine. Put, put, <laughs> put, alive in Paul, it. Paul, put the scissors down before you... Oh, gee. <laughs> Well, there's no uh, spew of white powder coming out of it, so that's a good start. <laughs> okay, here we go. Oh, what? Ooh. I don't know what this is. Well, I thought maybe it was a book inside, but it's not a book. It's 
Oh, it's what, what the, the hell, hell is this? A Looks mat like of a, some kind? A play mat? Yeah. Oh, is it's this a replacement a mat mat or something? <laughs> oh, yes, <laughs> it's the mat mat. No, it's. Uh, oh no no! It looks it looks more like newspaper um, clippings. It's kind of like massive mats. Oh, I've seen these. Um, they're what like large like mouse mats that you put on. Um, they are like big mouse tables. mats. Yes. Yeah. Oh, like, marvelous. Like gaming mats. Ha! Huh. Aren't there handouts for um, they've got masks like, by the look of it? Oh, brilliant! The stars are right. Yes, it's like a a mouse mat about two foot wide. Um, the Carlisle Massacre confirmed. Big Penhu Apple Dateline. Oh, Penhude Foundation. Murderers hanged. Erica Carlisle arrives in Africa. We, we, we should probably give uh, spoiler warnings for masks and masks <laughs> before we go much further here. Well, it's on the map. I mean, when would you... Uh, you'd kind of get one of these when you start and, playing, I would have thought. And yeah. a picture of the man himself, Jackson, down in the bottom right. Oh, marvellous. Ah, yes, indeed. Ah, and and uh, Sergeant Bumption. Maru has a coffee stain around her head like a halo. <laughs> <laughs> oh, yes. Oh, it's all kind of a sepia-toned, uh, like you're looking at a, 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 an investigator's desk with all the handouts laid out before you in sepia-tone with coffee stains. And, uh, yes, oh, that is rather awesome. Yeah. Thank oh, you very much, yeah. Jason. Yeah, thank you, Jason. This is, oh, my. This is nothing like what I expected. Oh, no. so I'm just, as mentioned previously, I'm putting together the uh, new house and doing my office, so this will be a great addition to my desk now. Yeah. yeah. And there is an accompanying letter which explains... Explains a lot. It sure does. So, to the good friends of Jackson Elias, inside this package, you will find custom playmats made by my wife, Anne. As a thank you for a good long campaign, I always try to give my players something unique as a thank you gift. I had these playmats custom printed in a small bulk order and wanted to give you a set as a thank you for all the wonderful things you've brought to my attention. And he continues... Soon I'll be following in your footsteps with my own gaming podcast, The Penguin Fringed Abyss. Thanks to Scott for the name idea. You really do come up with the weirdest names, don't well, you? Well, I, I think that is actually that yeah, a direct it, quote from At the Mountains of Madness. Yeah. 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 But, oh, God, you, you can't get a better phrase than that. And, yeah, I'm really excited about this podcast, Jason. Can't wait to hear it. <laughs> well, thank you very much, Jason. And when your podcast is out, we'll be sure to mention it. Well, that's enough of that. What's it time for now? Let me guess, it's time for the Lovecraftian word of the uh, week. And now, the Lovecraftian word of the week. And this week, our word, I think, pretty much describes Scott's opinion of the, the title of this segment. Hideous. It's an adjective. One, repulsive. Especially to the sight, revolting. Two, morally offensive. Yep, weak fortnight. Detestable. Three, causing great harm or fear. And yeah, this isn't what I suppose a lot of people would automatically jump to if, if they were asked to come up with a Lovecraftian adjective. But it's one that Lovecraft probably would have jumped to because... Yeah, the stats say otherwise. Yeah, yeah I, yeah, we, we, all the ones that we think of as being Lovecraftian, like, you know, Rugos and Squamous and Non-Euclidean and Cyclopean, he didn't actually use that much. 
On the other hand, hideous, he used 214 times in his main fiction. And if you expand it to things like hideousness or hideously, then there's another 46 uses on top of that. That's a good, like, four or five uses per story, per short story. Mm. He crams them in. Yeah. And I suppose in terms of what the the word actually means, its various definitions, it is very Lovecraftian in that respect because it it covers a lot of the the, the real themes of his stories. You know, that sense of revulsion, that sense of fear. And the the one that gets to me is that second definition, morally offensive. And, yeah, there's definitely an element of that running through uh, Lovecraft's fiction then, that sort of moral affront at the intrusions of uh, the alien. And now let's have a look at how Lovecraft used the word hideous in his writings. From Herbert West, Reanimator. The scene I cannot describe. I should faint if I tried it. For there is madness in a room full of classified charnel things, with blood and lesser human debris almost ankle deep on the slimy floor, and with hideous reptilian abnormalities sprouting, bubbling and baking over a winking bluish-green spectre of dim flame in a far corner of black shadows. And from the lurking fear... The thing came abruptly and unannounced, a demon rat-like scurrying from pits remote and unimaginable, a hellish panting and stifled grunting. And then, from that opening beneath the chimney, a burst of multitudinous and leprous life, a loathsome night-spawned flood of organic corruption, more devastatingly hideous than the blackest conjurations of mortal madness and morbidity. And from the horror at Red Hook. O friend and companion of night, thou who rejoicest in the baying of dogs. Here a hideous howl burst forth. And spilt blood. Here nameless sounds vied with morbid shriekings. Who wanderest in the mists of shades among the tombs. Here a whistling sigh occurred. Who longest for blood and bringest terror to mortals. Short, sharp cries from myriad throats. Gorgo! Repeated as response. Mormo! Repeated with ecstasy. Thousand-faced moon! Sighs and flute notes. Look favourably on our sacrifices! And now on to our main topic, portraying NPCs. We spent last episode talking about how to create uh, NPCs, what kind of preparation you need to do uh, before the game actually starts. Now this is our attempt, at least, to try to explain what we do when portraying the NPCs at the table, bringing them to life. Thinking about what one really does as a GM or keeper at the table to introduce an NPC isn't really something I'd given much thought to before. It just seems like, you know, they're there, I introduce them. Yeah, I I think because we've been doing this for such a long time and probably learned how to do these things through intuition rather than sitting down and actually puzzling them out or being instructed by other GMs, that, yeah, it's, it's quite a difficult thing to go back and think about what you actually do. So much for just putting them together and then kicking them out of the nest and say, fly, my pretties, fly, and see which ones <laughs> end up hitting the deck or, or soaring off to the sunset. I think often... If a NPC is in a scene, I would describe them. So the characters are in the library. They look around. I want to. They want to talk to the librarian as a standard kind of example. 
And I'd say, okay, well, there's a middle-aged woman putting books on a shelf. She appears to be the librarian. And the players would go over and talk to her. And sometimes I, it depends on how important the scene is. I, I don't know about you. I may not even do that much. You know, the the players will come into the library and say, right, OK, we're going to ask the librarian about this. And, you know, I'll respond, OK, well, she says such and such. Yeah, yeah that's probably true, Scott. Yeah. Although, are you introducing an NPC there? You'll just, if you relay that, OK, she says blah information, are you really introducing an NPC there or are you just giving out some information as GM? Well, you're giving out information as a GM through the medium of an NPC. So technically you are. But I mean, this, I, I guess, highlights something important, which is not all NPCs are created equal. So you may have um, a, you know, a, a major campaign villain or a major sporting character who is there all the way through the game, is very heavily fleshed out. But in a case where you're introducing a completely minor character like this you know you may you know, as you said bob you know given a very brief fiscal description or you may not bother at all what tools do we generally use to establish these npcs though i mean we, we've talked about a couple of extreme examples there but i mean matt for example if you're bringing in um you know an npc that you were expecting to be in the game you've had a bit of time to prepare uh how do you actually introduce that character to the players Generally, descriptively first, um, I would describe either um, that if they're going to talk to someone, they may hear someone talking in another room as they approach. Um, the, the example that's going through my head at the minute is from a game I ran on Wednesday night where they're approaching a church and they can hear people arguing inside. Um, they then go th The investigators go through the front door and there's an array of NPCs that they find there in the middle of a full-blown argument. So I would describe not so much what they're arguing about, but um, describe the people, how they look, the, the clothes they're wearing, and then also provide a photo reference of the character as well. So, well, that, that's his face, this is what he's dressed like, and this is what he's doing. And then behind him, you've got this guy, he's doing this and that and the other. Then there's these two women off in the corner, they're kind of, one's filing their nails and looking on quite uh, contemptively at the others, other boys arguing, and, and build that kind of scene up so you can see who's there. You get an idea of the relationships between the characters in that snapshot. So almost like presenting a photo of them at that moment. It does tend to be quite a brief overview doesn't it because you don't want to be talking for five minutes while your players all listen or look at their character sheets or something mm -hmm. so it wants to be a, a a fairly brief overview just spotlighting a few elements that, that are going on right yeah enough color so they can get the scene and put it together in their own head mm. yeah i mean the bit of wisdom i've heard over and over again which i think applies is that I for I think certainly for a single NPC, you shouldn't really come up with more than three things that you're presenting to the players because people shut off after that point. So if there's you know things like um, you know a physical description, going back to the librarian, I mean she's got you know frizzy, unkempt, greyish hair. Uh, she's you know perhaps not quite as neatly turned out uh, as you expected. Uh, second point, she has a surprisingly melodious voice. And third point that, you know, she's wearing, you know, something, you know, maybe some, some lavender oil or something like that that's a bit cloying. Those are three immediate details that the players can seize upon and they've got some mental image of her now. My, my poor little brain had trouble keeping after after frizzy and greyish unkempt and then that was the hair. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So you've got the hair, Matt. Yeah. <laughs> You're good. 
Yeah, I mean, that is probably more than I would do most times, Scott, to be honest. You, you mm. tend to embellish the NPCs more than I do, I think. However much we give, a lot of it is in the player's head. And if one thinks of listening to a radio drama, we kind of get a kind of mental image of the characters in a radio drama. But often we don't really get much physical description to base those upon. Mm. We get the sound of the voice. We get some references to perhaps to their profession, to their age, a few loose hooks upon which to hang things. So, But does it matter that each of us pictures X character, you know, in our own way, in our mm, head? Not, as long as there's a sort yeah. of loose consensus. Well, not unless those, those character details are important, mm. no. But I, I don't know about you. When I'm establishing details like those uh, for an NPC, one of the reasons I do it isn't isn't just to bring it to life for the players, but it's also to make them feel real to me as well. It's to sort of build up a sense of who that character is, which will then help me, particularly if I then come to a scene where there's a number of NPCs involved. It'll help me differentiate that character. It'll help me create some connection with them. Uh, which, you know, as a GM, I find really quite important to playing them. So those various details that you just mentioned, Scott, about their, their look and their smell and the way they talk and all these things, they allow us to differentiate between the different NPCs. When we present them to the players, how do we really communicate that differentiation? Going back to what you were saying about uh, radio shows... Role-playing games are fundamentally very different things uh, because you have this meta-narrative that's going on that you don't get in radio, where, as well as you, the in-character dialogue, in the vast majority of role-playing games, you have the additional information that is being exchanged between the players and the GM or the players and each other that is done entirely out of character. And this includes you know, things like description. From the point of view of... Um, of bringing that or differentiating that character then yes i mean you know that that out of character stuff is very very important and there are the things that you as the gm can tell the players directly but then once that character is in play i i, I don't know about you too i find it's really useful to come up with um some quirks of character or you know things about the way the character speaks i i'm not a very good mimic i cannot do accents to save my life um, but I, I do things like vary my tone of voice, vary the speed at which I talk, try to introduce emotion into the, uh, into the way I portray the character. And like I say, you know, things like just verbal tics, maybe there are words they overuse or things they mispronounce, uh, all the, all these various things that sort of build up into a little snapshot so that the next time the players speak to that character, I don't even have to say who they're speaking to. I just speak in that voice and they'll know. I'm not a particularly good voice actor myself, so I find that um, that fairly difficult. But I think it's very, as you say, varying the speed at which you speak, um, some of the language particularly, and also just the, as you say, the general emotional tone. Like um, I know one uh, very over the top NPC I've used previously, pretty much always used to begin this uh, any kind of statement with "What ho!" and go in a very going kind to of stiff up a lip, very stereotypical uh, accent there. But yeah, accents I can't do. Everything either sounds like it's from India or Wales. It's terrible. So t tell us how to do accents, Paul. <laughs> well, I am the master of many accents, <laughs> at least one. Um, yeah, I, I, that was exactly the example I was going to use, Matt, was if I try and do Welsh, somehow 
my Welsh and my Indian accent do just sort of blend together somehow. I think broadly, when it comes to differentiating characters, I think what I do is I have a bunch of archetypes in my head that I reuse. I don't necessarily mm. identify them as such, but, you know, I've got a kind of a snivelling servant character and I've got a posh lady and I've got a, I don't know, a creepy shopkeeper that does things. You know, I've kind of <laughs> With just rusty got... spoons. <laughs> <laughs> and I think I probably reuse those yeah. same kind of voices and mannerisms for different characters, mm. so... I've probably got, I don't know how many kind of archetypes that I'd sort of link into, probably not that many, probably, you know, maybe six or ten that I'd kind of broadly reuse again and again. Um, and I can remember years back running a campaign and, and my players would just sort of say, oh, it's that deep-voiced, wise character again. Because every time I did a kind of a, a superior, kind of wizardly character, I'd do a deep voice that sort of talked like this. And, and <laughs> you should have just made the comment that, ah, oh, you've met my brother. Yes. <laughs> yeah. So I just keep falling into the same ones again and again. But I think just trying yeah. to, that's, I, I think I just try and put myself in the shoes of that NPC and just talk how I imagine they would talk. Yeah. I don't tend to do American accents because I'm no good at them. Mm-hmm. I may throw in the odd word, like saying tomato instead of tomato, but you know that's my kind of tip of the hat to trying to do accents, really. Yeah, and I find that um, I just word choice—it's not just the way you pronounce them, mm. but yeah. If, for example, if you're if you're doing something that's say set in the 1920s or 30s America, you know, using uh, referring to player characters as you know things like guy or buddy or pal or something mm. like that, you know, immediately sets a certain tone. Old that, sport. You know, <laughs> yes, yes, yeah. exactly. Uh, but yeah, it, it sort of immediately tells you something about who that character is. And maybe it's a British thing as well. But we very much rely on the class accent as well, I think. Yes. You know, it's kind of working class, upper class, middle class. That, that is quite a defining characteristic. And that goes along with the, um, the choice of language as well, I think. And how assertive one is as well. Uh, whether one's really kind of stuttering, lacking confidence in talking to the player characters or whether I'm banging my hand on the table and pointing at players and barking orders at them, which is always good fun. <laughs> Doing it the players too works a wonders at times. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> um, you know, that, that's that, that just something to, to, to differentiate the... Uh, the non-player character and make it fun for me to play. Yeah, though, interestingly, I think uh, in terms of intimidation or establishing dominance or anything like that, that, you know, barking orders and shouting actually doesn't work quite as effectively as just sitting very still, uh, speaking in a firm, clear tone of voice and just using word choices that make it very obvious that you expect people to do what you say. I, I think that goes far, far beyond uh, just you know, calling someone a sniveling little shit and pointing your finger at them <laughs> in terms of letting them know what the relationship between those characters is. One other major thing I want uh, I try to put an effort into differentiating when presenting an NPC especially is whether you're talking to a human or you're talking to a monster um, because you've obviously you've got the regular humans even whether they're cultists or not in a Call of Cthulhu game mm. but if you're talking to something that's sentient and can communicate like let's say a deep one or Amiga um, or, or something, yeah, yeah. something like that then that is one time where I will try and uh, differentiate um, voice tone quite as much as I can do and try to make it sound as kind of inhuman as possible, mm. either by slowing down a lot and the elongating or um, finding words, certain words just don't 
and they don't understand them. Um, for perhaps one, using sort of abstract thoughts that you know don't really make sense to humans. Mm-hmm. You know that that kind of mm-hmm. yeah, yeah, one, odd logic. But we've said all that under the assumption that you know you might not be very good at mimicry or accents or whatever. But obviously, if you are, you should make full use of that, and that can really bring a game to life. Mm. And I've played a couple of games with Anthony Lee Dudley, uh, who has got some acting training and is a you know, fantastically skilled mimic. Uh, he's really, really good with accents, and he just slips between all these NPC voices flawlessly. Does you know fantastic American accents, uh, and yeah, I mean that kind of stuff can add a whole different degree of depth to a game if you can pull that off you know by all means do i mean even if your accents are a bit ropey they can still you know add a degree of maybe not very similitude but uh, certainly engagement hmm. on the other hand you paul should never do a fucking accent again <laughs> <laughs> well i'll spare the listeners that maybe <laughs> i think the way we portray the non-player characters particularly in their interactions with the player characters, is how we try to build, well, I say try, how we sometimes try to build an emotional connection between the the non-player character and the player characters, or indeed the the, the players. And sometimes that's one way we want them to, we try to instill a sense of sympathy or or, uh, antipathy, or it could be any kind of emotional bond. But we try to, I think it's good if one can try and build that in. Yeah, and I, I don't know about you two, but I find that, you know, as in life in general, in role-playing it's far easier to uh, evoke negative emotions than positive ones. Damn straight. I hate virtually all of the NPCs that turn up in your games and want to see them dead. <laughs> <laughs> They're all assholes. <laughs> but it, I, I think it's far easier to provoke in a negative way to yeah, you know, bring about disgust or anger or dislike with a casually introduced NPC than it is to you know, put an NPC out there and expect the players to bond with them. One of the things about having a friendly NPC and having some of the players bond with them is that what I've found is often some of the players will bond with them and some of them won't. Yeah. And that creates a tension among the players, which is, you know, quite cool. So are there any particular tricks that you two use to try to provoke a specific emotional reaction uh, when betraying an NPC? I'd show certain NPCs have been quite vulnerable, especially if they're... when you can technically classify them as a bad guy. Um, Case in point, going back to the example again on Wednesday night, they had a... Group, they found a, um, a girl crying in a tent, um, her face uh, pretty mashed up and covered in bandages. They take the bandages off and find that she's transforming into something more than human, which, or less than human, depending on your, um, your outtake there. That once they realise that yep, she is fundamentally part of the problem, what someone that originally they were quite sympathetic towards, they were trying to calm, suddenly they got put on the back foot and going, oh, hang on a minute. Yeah, probably we should distance ourselves a bit from this. So again, pulling pulling the rug out on um, pulling the rug out under them in that instance was quite fun. How about you, Paul? Are there any specific techniques that you use to try to create some kind of emotional reaction? I'm not sure if there are specific techniques that I use. Not that I'm conscious of. I think, um, I mean, going back to those archetypes again, I think some of those kind of um, I've tried to sort of make them feel a bit creepy or a bit. Uh, pathetic and seeking sympathy 
Yeah, I, I, I'm not sure if I've got specific techniques. I guess the most, the main thing I do is just sort of try and put myself in the in the shoes of the non-player character and portray that non-player character to the to the players in a way that sort of forms some sort of emotional connection that's just appropriate. I don't know. Hmm. Tricky one. What about you, Scott? Well, as I said, I, mean, I think it's it's easier to get a strong negative reaction. And, I mean, that's a very good thing in horror games. And I do... I, I, I tend to try to use disgust an awful lot as a way of, of creating that emotional reaction to an NPC that I want the players to remember. And sometimes this can be as simple as just describing the way they smell. Someone who smells bad. I mean, particularly if you can explain how they smell bad. You know, a, a taint of rotten fish or something about them, you know, to use the classic Lovecraftian mm. uh, one. Yeah, similarly, actions. Um, I, I remember one of the strongest reactions I got to an NPC was an improvised one in a cult game that I ran many years ago at a convention. Um, that... It was someone that a player character had decided they wanted to go along and get some information from. And I wanted to make this character fairly repellent. So basically I had him sitting there uh, during the entire conversation, eating a leftover Chinese meal out of um, uh, some aluminium containers on the table. And just made a point of, of sort of saying that, you know, it had very obviously gone off, that there was mould growing in places, that he was pulling out spare ribs and you could see maggots wriggling in the bottom of it. And just descri you know, describing him chewing in between words and bits of the rancid fat running down his chin and stuff like that and uh, you know th at the end of it you know, the, the four players were just sitting there just staring at me wild eyed I mean they could they could barely actually force themselves to interact with this NPC and it was great nice <laughs> so we talked about I mean for the three of us we've all said that we're not very good at doing accents but do we feel we get into the the mind of the NPC and try and play it from their point of view, you know, as we're acting a role. Yeah, definitely. Especially if you set up a motivation for them and they have a plan where if it makes sense logically to them, then obviously by kind of extension, you're the one that's created the NPC. To some extent, it's going to click in your head as well. So, so for that moment, you're playing their agenda. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Yeah, and I think it's very much the same for me, that uh, if I can get inside the head of the NPC and, well, role-play them, then um, yeah, I, I find it much easier to betray them at the table, to use them in the way that I know I need to use them in the game. And also, I, I think, you know, more importantly, at least for me, it's fun to do. I think this is where... Uh, we as keepers get to role play, isn't it? Mm. You know, by role playing the non-player characters. So that's that's a lot of fun. It should be. I, having said all that, I don't know about you two, but I find that there are times where, you know, going back to our example of the librarian earlier, that there are moments where you know an NPC is is perhaps something that just came up randomly during a game or they're serving a very specific function, you know, like a shopkeeper or, uh, you know, a hired thug or something like that, that they've, they've just turned up to do a particular job, they're not an important character, you haven't bothered fleshing them out very much ahead of time. If they're just conveying information, I, do you always play that out in character or do you sometimes just give a summary, you know, to the, the players and sort of say, all right, they tell you this? 
I think it even doesn't necessarily matter whether it's a throwaway character, an improvised one, or an established integral character to a story. Um, it depends on what's being talked about. Um, that if it's they go to a particularly important NPC, but they're asking them something fairly mundane or like saying, mm. oh, I've come here to get a requisition request for this particular piece of equipment or, or something, again, like that, then I'll just gloss over the scene and say, yeah, you, you fill out the appropriate paperwork, you just make small talk yeah. with him and then do this. The standard issue here is we're halfway through the Call of Cthulhu game. Matt hands me a note. I've referred to this in previous shows, <laughs> saying I buy some dynamite. <laughs> so <laughs> I don't, you know, I just pass him a note back saying, you know, it, well, yes or no. But I, I, things like that, you know, we go and tool up or whatever. We don't role play the whole thing of going to the gun mm. shop or, or whatever you say necessarily. That. You say that. I mean, I've, I've certainly played with groups who actually really do seem to want to role play every NPC interaction like that. Well, I can't count for what everyone does, Scott, but <laughs> yeah. what we do, I don't think we tend oh, to do that. Oh, yeah, yeah, no, but I'm talking about, you know, groups that I've GM'd for, you know, where they, they've tried to engage every single character in conversation like that. And, you know, they, there I am sometimes just trying to summarise things and push things to a conclusion and it's, you know, they, they, they suddenly launch into, you know, another bit of random conversation. But in a case like that, I mean, how how do you handle it? I mean, do you, if the group's enjoying it, do you go along and do you, you know, role-play every single one of those interactions or, or do you just try to summarise and move on if it's not important? I think it's part in part depends upon the pace of your game. If you're running a one-off, it's a, it's a one-shot game, you're trying to get through it that evening... If they start talking to the shopkeeper, you know, about the time of day and the weather and everything, and then it's not integral to the game, then I would just expedite the process and say, you know, you've got the gear and now you're maybe even cut to the next scene. You know, you've, you've driven to the wherever and you're at the old house. Yeah, sim- similar. I, I don't like to focus on that kind of minutiae. I like to skip to where the proper action and proper story is, unless that, that in that using that instance of they've gone to a particular shopkeeper to get equipment or what wherever they've gone if that moment can be a vehicle to then get more information to mm. them mm. then i might skip in to say the shopkeeper says and then leap into a bit of narrative yeah but, i think if, yeah. if the players are focusing on it and seem interested enough to try and talk to that npc why waste that really yeah and i suppose the other defense of doing that is that if you run a fairly heavily improvisational game, there could be stuff that comes out of of what you or the players are saying there that suddenly does become important later in the game, even though you weren't anticipating it. Because you have got this cast of NPCs that you've prepared for the game, as we talked about in the previous episode. I mean, unless it is a wholly improvised one, you've got various NPCs. And maybe you look at your list of NPCs and think, okay, well, I could kind of scrub the serial numbers off that one and turn it into the shopkeeper. Maybe the Mm. shopkeeper is part of the cult or whatever. And that's a surprise to you, the GM, then, as well. You're like, oh, yeah, actually, yeah, that changes the scenario. This guy is, you know, that he's the, the evil dude. The esoteric order of grocer, uh, grocers. <laughs> Fishmongers, surely. Ah. <laughs> you talk about having a large cast of NPCs there, though, Paul. Uh, I, one thing that I've struggled with a few times, and yeah, I, I, I'd be really interested in knowing how you two handle this, is what happens where you've got a scene, like the one you were describing earlier, Matt, where you've got a bunch of NPCs in it, and they're having conversations between them. Um 
Do you, as a GM, sit there and act as a one-man theatre troupe, portraying all that to the uh, to the players, or do you find other ways of handling that? I guess that's where, if you are good at accents, you can really differentiate the people, and and maybe that can be entertaining. Maybe, but I mean, even, that's the only way I can think it could be. Even if you've got the skills to pull that off, it doesn't get around the fundamental problem that it's still a passive experience for the players. But what I'm saying is, if it's a good performance, it's a passive experience for the players, but it could be entertaining. Yeah. If it's not even that, then it's really dull. Yes. Yeah. My answer's a lot simple. Fuck no, I don't do that. Um, I just li- I just lay out this and say, this is what's being described. This person's got this side of the argument. This person's got another side of the argument. This guy's trying to do this. And li- just give a very broad overview of what the hell is going on and yeah. then how the scene resolves unless the players in- uh, don't interrupt. Yeah, you might say yeah. one of them gets really angry and starts shouting such and such and you describe what mm-hmm. they say or you speak in their voice as oh, to what they say. I-, I maybe actually wouldn't even go that far. I would just say that an argument breaks out and just... Hmm. almost just leave it at that yeah yeah i mean i i'd probably be inclined i mean if it's a key thing like that like the argument breaking out and someone you know making a point that the players really need to know about i would probably drop in a few lines of in-character dialogue there just to pepper it Mm -hmm. but yes yeah I, i wouldn't have you know three npcs standing there having a conversation with each other while the player characters watch because a I don't think it's very important to the, you know, oh, sorry, I don't think it's very interesting to the players. And B, I feel like a bit of a twat doing it. <laughs> when shall we three meet again? About two weeks for the next recording. <laughs> ah, yes. Mm-hmm. We're talking about a conversation between maybe two or three NPCs there in front of the player characters. What about when there's a whole host of NPCs in your game? They're not all necessarily talking together in the same scene, but how do we manage that? How do we manage that that massive cast of NPCs? Well, how many NPCs written down, Matt? Oh, about 35, maybe. 35. Uh-huh. <laughs> right. <laughs> oh, okay. I was just looking at Scott to see if he still has the shudders from seeing some of my relationship maps for the scenarios I've given him to edit. Yeah. Well, that's an important tool you mentioned right there, yeah? The relationship oh, map. Oh, yes. If, so yeah, if you if you can go full on CSI and have a corkboard wall <laughs> where you have photos pinned up and then pieces of string tied between them, that's the kind of thing that well, I really find helpful. That, that's exactly what Robin did, our friend Robin, when he ran Beyond the Mountains of Madness. Mm, I know, I took a lot of inspiration <laughs> from yeah, that. Yeah, he, he had a corkboard and he had pictures of the NPCs pinned up and little notes about them. And as a visual aid, that was fantastic. Especially when you cross them off and you just say, dead! <laughs> and then rip them off. <laughs> I'm sure your study probably looks like the 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 guy from seven when they break into his apartment and there's all those like bits of string and pictures and stuff on the wall and there's a reason is why seven is, there's a reason why seven is one of my favorite films <laughs> yeah but you're not a serial killer right matt okay let's move on <laughs> As well as uh, relationship maps, which I rely on an awful lot, I, mean, I, I also, I mean, for smaller games, quite often just use bullet points, uh, where I'll have the names of NPCs and then a couple of pertinent details. Um, or uh, w- one thing that I'll do quite a lot, because I tend to run games where there's multiple different factions, uh, uh, and and the the player characters don't necessarily know who they all are or how things interact with each other. 
is that instead of breaking it down by character, I'll break it down by faction, have uh, either relationship maps or uh, bullet point lists of, of factions or affiliations, uh, and then you know, have the, uh, the NPCs as sub-entries under those and, and link them together that way. But in both cases, they, they serve the same general purpose for me, which is as a quick visual reference I can look at during play um, and remind myself what these NPCs are called, how they relate to each other, um, and and give me some idea of how I should be playing them. It's also really handy when, if you have a group all tied that, that in the same place, you take them out all in one go, your relationship map becomes a hell of a lot simpler. <laughs> yes. It occurs to me we've mentioned relationship map a few times. Perhaps we just br- very briefly say what it is. So it's just a bit of paper, and it's got the names of the NPCs on, and then lines going from one NPC to another, just describing their relationship in some way so you know this character to that character the the boss and employee that one hates that one that's having an affair with that one and so on another thing that can make managing large casts easier and this is something you touched upon with with your shopkeeper example paul is this idea i i've come across it in relation to television writing before which is the you know the principle of conservation of characters uh so that if you're going to introduce a new character into um into a storyline well take a look first of all and see whether there's an existing character that you've got that can serve the same role and you know if you've got um you know a campaign that's going on and it's got a huge cast of characters in it. And you suddenly realise that, yes, you need a shopkeeper or uh, you need someone who is going to you know, be found breaking into the, uh, the player character's house and searching for information or something like that. Instead of coming up with a brand new character, take a look through your resi- existing cast and see whether there is someone you can reuse and repurpose for that. I think that's a brilliant technique. I think it, it provides a an ongoing continuity to the players and as as a keeper i can play that character again and again that non-player character Mm -hmm. starts to take on a life of their own and perhaps becomes a more prominent part of the game and also you know it's fewer non-player characters then for the players to keep track of because you know on the player side of things if i i'm in a game where there are 35 important npcs there is no bloody way i'm going to be able to remember who they all are if we can keep that down to about 10 and some of them keep coming back in different roles then i stand a much better chance of actually caring about them and we get that possibly we then get that emotional connection between the players and that non-player character. They're like, oh, it's that guy again. You know, he was a pain in the arse or he was really good or whatever. Or, of course, there's the Sanderson approach to keeping the numbers of NPCs down, which it only works when you're a player, which is every time you encounter a non-player character, you kill them. Only if they start monologuing. No, no, sometimes it's not even them. It's, yeah. Or they, this NPC looks like they're important, I shoot him in the head. In the example I'm thinking of, the guy was pulling a gun on me first, so he no, deserved No, no, you it. had a gun pointed at his head. Yeah, but then he decided yeah, but to he react. Started, he did start pulling a gun. <laughs> so I say, it cuts down your relationship map and makes it a lot easier to track them. You're just making life easier for the GM, Matt. Exactly. Well, actually, maybe you're not, because they're not then able to progress the plot in the way perhaps they intended. Oh, it's, I'm a caring and sharing player. I like to ease the burden on my GM. So if ever you are running a game for Matt, make sure that you put the monologue that the NPC is about to give, make sure they've got a written copy of it on their person. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe in a metal bulletproof case that can be found afterwards by another player character as a handout. Or, or alternatively, 
if you're me, make sure that the characters that Matt's most likely tempted to kill are actually the ones that further down the lines would be the ones that might actually save his character from the shit. Ah, well, you live and learn, don't you? None of your NPCs would do that. (laughs) We don't buy that. Um, But building on that, then, when when there is a large cast of NPCs in play, this sort of goes back to the, the question of dialogue between them. But are there any particular tools or techniques you use to actually switch between non-player characters during a scene? One of the tricks that I picked up, especially after being running Heaven and Earth for quite a long time, that there are visual aids given, there are portraits given for each individual NPC in the book... Um, have them printed out or done up as cards, however you want however you want to do it, really. You can lay that character out on the table or push it forward to the players as, an, as a visual aid to show this is the person that's speaking. And then pull that one back and then push another one forward or point to them, however you want to do. As long as you're making that connection that this is the person speaking, now it's this person speaking, and so on. Because that's otherwise, I do find it very difficult to swap between them, which is why I say I just give broad brushstrokes generally when there's more than one NPC talking to one another. That's a really useful tool. And Chaosium have now brought out the NPC deck of character portraits. Mm-hmm. Unusual characters, I think mm. it's called. Although the only, the only piece of artwork committed that sticks with me is the guy that's eating bad squid when he's just got tentacles coming out of his mouth. <laughs> And there's another kind of very simple and obvious technique, which is not to be afraid to let characters uh, fade into the background. So if you do have a bunch of of NPCs in the scene and um, the player characters are only focusing on a couple of them, uh, don't bother describing or saying anything that the other NPCs are doing. If they're not important to the players at that moment, then there's no reason to focus any attention on them. That, That just proves a distraction to everything else that's going on. Without giving away a spoiler, um, there is a very nice trick that I remember from one particular campaign where it's designed where an NPC does fade away into the background because the players don't keep track of him or or her or them, that while they're around um, investigating things in a particular location, if they haven't made a mention of talking to the NPC, that NPC is causing shit all around the area. (laughs) And it's just well, you didn't say you're looking at uh, looking out for him. You haven't been interacting with him. You've just you just slipped your mind, and he's been off doing this, that, and the other. Sometimes, as GM, I kind of get quite attached to some of the non-player characters, and I think some of the players do as well. And I guess we're mostly thinking of adversaries here. Perhaps not much in the same way as player characters. We don't necessarily want to see them killed off. And as GM, we've kind of got the power to save them. You know, how much do we exercise that right? Yeah, I'm really fond of the advice in Apocalypse World, uh, which is to look at your NPCs through crosshairs. Or, or the variant of it that's in Monster Hearts, which I love, which is treating your NPCs like stolen cars. So it's, I mean, what this means is that you should just accept the fact that Matt will shoot them in the head. Woohoo! Uh, that, yeah, you shouldn't you shouldn't worry about NPCs dying, you shouldn't worry about bad things happening to them, as long as there are interesting consequences. And sure, I'm, you, know, you may end up shooting that monologuing NPC in the head, 
that doesn't mean that your decision to do so isn't going to cause complications further down the line. Um, you know, maybe that NPC was, yeah, as I said before, someone that you could have learned something important and life-saving from. Um, maybe you, know, you have just invited a whole bunch of retribution down on your head by doing so. Um, yeah, maybe you're going to end up being arrested and prosecuted for just outright murder. Whatever it is, you know, there, there may well be consequences from that. It's it's not an unimportant thing that that NPC died. Um, and, yeah, certainly just keeping them alive artificially in that circumstance does nothing but frustrate the players and just, I, I think, make the game feel that bit less real. Plus having that oh shit moment of if we kept them alive, we would be in a better situation. I love moments like that. Yeah. Especially when it usually it's me that's the one who's bloody responsible. Yeah, I think there's a... I mean, I don't know. I wouldn't overplay that advice because I think that almost goes against the whole continuity and reincorporation advice. Um, so I think you know, there's a balance to be struck there. Oh, but I think the difference is that with this, you're talking about reacting to what the players are doing. It's not like you as the GM are arbitrarily going, right, that NPC is dead, that NPC is dead. And you can do some of that, for example, just to foreshadow some of the dangers in the game. But uh, on the whole, you know, NPCs are going to suffer horrible fates because the PCs made it happen. Although we did have a bit of a debate before we went on air as to what actually uh, treating an NPC like a stolen car meant. I think me and Paul had different, had completely different opinions <laughs> on what that meant to, uh, to yourself there, Scott. So, yeah, <laughs> that, that's because I don't know where all the NPC chop shops are. I, uh, you know, go and cut those NPCs apart, sell off their organs for a bit of money. Yeah, make, make fuzzy dice out of their testicles, whatever you were planning on doing. Mm. Pimp my NPC. <laughs> <laughs> I don't even know what that means. (laughs) (laughs) The thing that frustrates me is the classic one that particularly we see in written campaigns and scenarios, which basically says, even if the players try to kill this NPC or try and capture him, he gets away. Oh, fuck yeah. that shit. That's a table flip moment for me. I really <laughs> fucking hate that. Yeah, I mean, there are games that you know, provide you with with some tools to make that happen in a a, a less obtrusive manner. Um, so, I mean, for example, some of the fate games, you know, you could, you know, as players earn fate points, you know, if the uh, the the NPC gets away, and you know, in in uh, Pop Cthulhu, for example, absolutely in Pop yeah. Cthulhu, the anti heroes now get like luck score, which they can spend to, you know, by all probability, be able to spend to escape the heroes the in mook. at least one or two scenes. Yeah. The mook jumps in front of my bullet and says, no, I'll take that for you, master. <laughs> exactly. I mean, that's a specific yeah. move that the anti-heroes can play. Yes, but at some point you've got to just accept the fact that your NPCs are going to die. And, for example, when we were writing The Two-Headed Serpent, there are multiple antagonistic NPCs in that. And um, we just anticipated that at various points player characters might try to kill one or more of them. Mm. And we could have put in things like, you know, this is how to make sure character X stays alive. But we didn't. What we did instead was put in GM advice all the way through as to, you know, how do you handle this upcoming chapter if, you know, these NPCs are dead? So just a quick catch up there. So Two-Headed Serpent is the pulp campaign that we've written that is now published by Chaosium. Another thing there, Scott, is that there were various 
factions that the player characters might end up siding with and we had to kind of allow for that as well because we don't really know that some npcs might be enemies in some games uh, but in other games you know other people's stories they might actually be friends mm. yeah which i think you know it's it's a it very much depends on how the players play it as to whether an npc becomes a friend or an enemy particularly when matt's on board hey hey Sort of building on that, though, what makes NPCs different from PCs, apart from the fact that it's the GM playing them? I think one of the dangers is that they, because the GM is playing them, they become all-knowing and all-seeing and infallible. And it's very easy to play that. So I think when I play my NPCs, I purposefully make keep them limited as to in, within their abilities and their knowledge and also allow for the npcs to make mistakes yes because so often in things that i read it's like the npcs don't make any mistakes and it's almost like if they have made a mistake well that's a, a fault on the part of the gm there was an io or kind of really light bulb shining eye-opening moment for me when i encountered a character like this not in a um, not in a game but in a tv series instantly kind of ingrained in me this will never happen in any of my games heroes the series that's been mm-hmm. gone for a little while and has come back briefly i think now and maybe gone uh, away again yeah it, it got cancelled again yeah what a what a heartbreaking shock that was <laughs> uh, there was a character i think he popped up at the beginning of season three that basically was all out god um, could do anything, could regenerate, could uh, was immortal, had mind-reading powers, had dream-reading. Basically, he had like, he was like fucking Pokemon. He had everything crammed into the one box. And one episode ended with him just mystically appearing out of nowhere in the middle of a desert to another one of the long-standing characters and going, oh, I hear you've been dreaming about me. And proceeded to like mind-rape the, the character and thought, no, that's fucking bullshit. <laughs> it's just crap. To have this thing know everything and not be able to be stopped. Like, no, this never, ever, ever is going to happen in my games from here forward. Well, at yeah. least you learned something from Heroes, Matt. <laughs> well, so, apparently so did the scriptwriters, because they all got fired halfway through the season. Oh, all I learned was not to watch after season one, but... Yeah. Yeah. But this doesn't just come down to power levels. I mean, you know, as you were hinting at before, Paul, I think you know, having flawed NPCs or NPCs who have fundamentally misunderstood the situation or who are broken in some ways mitigates all that anyhow um, in that you know, they, they may come along and do entirely the wrong thing in pursuit of their agenda. Um, they, they may be able to persuade the players that that's the right agenda to take. Oh, absolutely. And that's yeah. always hilarious when that happens. Yeah. Especially if their logic holds up, even if mm. it is missing part of the clue. Mm. Oh, yeah. This is one of my favourite tricks. <laughs> uh, yeah. I love doing stuff like that in games. Having reasonable sounding NPCs whose motivations just do not make any bloody sense once you scratch the surface. <laughs> of course, we need to kill this baby. It's the only way the sun's going to come up in the morning. What the hell? <laughs> <laughs> well, in an investigative game, which is often what we're playing the players are scrabbling to kind of make sense of it all perhaps and they haven't really got all the pieces so if an npc presents them with an explanation of what's going on it's kind of easy to kind of buy into that but that doesn't just apply to villains uh this is something i must admit i i haven't encountered myself in a game but i've seen endless stories of people complaining about it online 
where the GM decides they've got this non-player character that they really love, who is almost their proxy in the game, who is better at everything than the player characters are, and will come along and solve all the problems before the player characters have a chance to do so. And the player characters are, are relegated to the role of just being their audience. Mm. This is particularly toxic, I think, if you're playing a game where you kind of maybe alternate GMs, and the GM plays their what was previously their PC in a game mm. which is like i think that's a real no-no mm-hmm. particularly if it's a dnd type game where i think in dnd type games people are more generally more precious about their player characters um because you know they build them up over years whereas in call of cthulhu they we get attached to our player characters we know they're more dispensable i guess but it is a very very fine line to walk i mean, I, I was in the position recently of um, writing a scenario, um, I won't give any spoilers for it, where there's an NPC in there where it's fairly important that the player characters build a, a positive relationship with them. And you know, I wanted to have him in, in a position where he'd be able to bail out the player characters sometimes or provide them with key bits of information. But you know, it was every time there was an opportunity to do that, you know, there was a, a warning bell going off in my head, sort of saying, am I overshadowing them here? Am I you know, in danger of just completely negating you know, anything they do because this NPC will do it all better? And, you know, that, that, that's a really fine line to walk. Especially when he lies about his name from the first scene. <laughs> then you don't trust, don't trust an NPC who lies about his identity. <laughs> we'll come back to this at some point, I think. Yes, to be, <laughs> yes con- we will. to be continued. But I'd go back to the point that different players are going to take to that NPC quite differently. And I know in a game that I ran for you guys recently, a chapter of The Poison Tree, I had an NPC who had their own agenda and was a bit crazy and was doing some pretty questionable things. But some of the players were actually like, Oh no! I don't want to hurt this guy. I, I you know, I really like him. I've, I've really got to know him. Bullshit! We should have drowned him in a pond. That's what we should have done. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm not talking about you two. Yeah. You two didn't sympathise yeah, well, with him. Yeah, I hit him in the face with the frying pan. I think. Well, yeah, and I think you finally coup de grace and shot him in the head when he was down on the ground. Or, yes, yeah. yes, I did. Yeah. Well, that's 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 a given. But normal players, <laughs> normal players, I managed to you know evoke a sense of sympathy towards him go me the wrong deluded fools (laughs) (laughs) but yeah i mean that's an interesting point in that i mean it it can work both ways there are some times where you may want the players to become sympathetic to a non-player character and yeah they will just take an instant dislike because of reasons Hmm. yeah Um, absolutely and yeah i i guess well the thing is you can't you can't guarantee how the players are going to react to anything in a role-playing game and a non-player character is just the same. And and this comes down to you know the the one key GM ability, which is being able to improvise uh, and and you know adapt stuff on the fly. So if you have built everything around the fact that you know this NPC is going to act as a patron or is going to you know save the asses of the uh, the PCs at some stage, and you know they've sort of said fuck this guy from the outset, we don't want to have anything to do with him, then yeah you've got to come up with a plan B. There was a great. Thing online a few years ago which took scenes from the lord of the rings films 
and scripted it as a kind of non-player character versus player character kind of roles. So Gandalf was very much in that that role that you spoke about, Scott, of the NPC that kind of comes back and saves them whenever they get in trouble. Um, we that, could maybe link to that on the that, show notes. That was DM of the Rings, wasn't it? Could well be. Yeah. Gandalf being an, an NPC, omniscient, overpowered creation of the GM. Exactly. Who would have thought? Yeah. Along those lines, are there any specific examples you can think of of NPCs where you've you've thrown them into play, you haven't expected them to be very important, and then all of a sudden, because of the way the player characters have reacted to them, they've taken on a you know, new dimension or a life of their own? Well, I can, but it's a slightly different example. When I was running uh, Miles Magic Campaign years ago, I had a particularly dislikable, kind of slimy wizard character in the game as an NPC and then I had another friend come along and become a player and he actually took on that NPC as a player character and to, and he kind of kept that dislikable facet of the character but you know made it totally into his own thing so I guess that's a bit of a divergence because it became a player character but it was a an NPC that became a player character so and basically professor snape <laughs> yeah, I guess so. Um, more dislikable, I think. Oh, wow. <laughs> uh, yeah, not not redeemed. Um, and kind of worked against the other player characters. Yeah, it was a lot of fun. But. Yeah, the only instance I can think of um, out of games that I've run over the last couple of years is when I ran Lamentations of the Flame Princess, um, where there's the, the setup being that stuff has gone down in a small village. And the priest has been killed, and a basically the town drunk has been put in his position. So at least if anyone just rolls through town on a, on a Sunday, they see someone uh, vaguely giving a sermon at the front of a church, or they see someone walk around town in um, in robes. Yeah, in a couple of games, that town drunk has turned out to be particularly a uh, well, to say, a tool of the PCs in some instances, where they've really picked him up and run with, run with him and got him to do their dirty work or use him as ablative armor. Um, and other instances where they've really tried to set out to, uh, to either punish or redeem him for his uh, for his sins. And why is that, Matt? Do the player characters just enjoy interacting with you playing that NPC, do you think? Uh, it, it's not happened in all the times I've run it. It's only certain groups. So I think mm. it's very much the groups see this as, oh, this is a challenge or this is something I can get my teeth into. But then yeah. other, groups also, other groups don't. Right, right. Well, I guess part of that depends on which aspects of the scenario they find important, whether they're seeing it as being entirely goal-oriented, in which case, you know, maybe, you know, they're seeing all this stuff with the priest as being a distraction from, you know, what what they feel like they as characters should be doing. Or alternatively, with some groups, you know, they, they, you know, they're just looking for whatever is going to be fun in the game and seize on that. Yeah, which is, a, is very much determined by your group. The good friends of Jackson Elias now have a Patreon page. Think of it as an electronic donation box to help with the running costs of the show. The podcast will remain free and donations are entirely voluntary. Follow the Patreon link on blasphemoustomes.com. Thanks for listening. Once again, it is time to thank those lovely, generous people who have given us money via Patreon. Uh, this money that you donate to us gives us uh, the fuel to keep the podcast going. It allows us to buy bandwidth, to buy hosting, buy the occasional new bit of equipment, and generally keep the podcast on the air. So thank you very much to each and every one of you. 
And once again, we have a few new people to thank this time. First off, a big thanks to Kevin Glazner. Yes, thank you very much, Kevin. Indeed, thank you, Kevin. And now, moving up to the $3 level, thank you very much to David Lewis. Thanks, David. Hey, thanks, David. Cheers. 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 And now, the moment that some people that evidently want to inflict a lot of pain on us have been looking forward to, the singing. Well, it's, it's not just inflicting it upon us. It's, it's our entire listenership and ultimately upon themselves. It's sharing the joy. So for $5 levels, we sing our praises to those who, uh, who back us at that level. And if you've listened to the podcast before, you know what an overstatement the word sing is. Yeah, I think there are laws against mis-selling things like this. <laughs> it should be against the Geneva Convention for audio torture. But what we lack in talent, we make up for in, I don't know, probably nothing really. <laughs> and the first round of torture goes out to Hayden Beck. Thank you, Hayden. Yes, thank you very much, Hayden, and brace yourself. Yep, you brought this on yourself. Thank you. Thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you, Hayden, Hayden! And our second singing tribute goes out to Greg Collins. Yes, thank you very much, Greg. Yeah, thank you, Greg. Thank you, 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 thank And once again, we've had some correspondence in various forms this time. Indeed. Yes, there was a post on uh, Google Plus where someone we have mentioned frequently on the podcast chipped in to point out that we have been pronouncing his name wrong. Who would have thought such a thing could happen? So we have been referring to uh, this man as Forrester Gwyr, as in a Gwyr Wrath of God. But apparently... I, I didn't realise how much variation there was in pronunciation of this name across the US. Uh, I mean, elsewhere in the post, he gives a number of examples of other people with the same last name and the wide variety of pronunciations they use. But he has explained it uh, in a rather unique way. Uh, he says, We pronounce it as if he were trying to slyly tell your friend Gary that he's committed a grave social misstep, like speaking to the chief of the local Chocho tribe with his daughter's severed finger caught in your teeth, like so. Uh, Gary? So, I, that sounds like it should be Forrester Gary. Apologies for getting your name wrong all this time, Forrest. And if we're still getting it wrong, apologies for it. <laughs> you know us, we're going to fuck it up somewhere on the line. You know, it's going to happen. No, we can rely on Scott to get it right. <laughs> I, and Paul will carry on referring to you now as a Gary, wrath of God. <laughs> <laughs> now I'm just confused, but I'll do my best. We also have correspondence from Frank. Frank more, Delventhal. More corrections. More corrections. <laughs> well, it's a full-time job correcting us, basically. It is, but this is quite a terrifying one. And it, but actually, he's not correcting us here. He's correcting Robert E. Howard. 
So he points out a long-standing inaccuracy when discussing the merits of ripping mythos tomes like telephone directories, which we must point out that he does. If, uh, if you're on Facebook and you look up Frank Dalventhal, you will see him ripping telephone directories, not only with his hands, but with his teeth. For fun. <laughs> For fun. Yeah, big fun. Yes. And he says, I trained to save the world, so I want to tear the Necronomicon and, here we go, the Unesprechlichen Colton. <coughs> he wants to tear those in half, but apparently he gives, this is where the correction comes in, Mr. Robert E. Howard. Apparently, the book title, which we know as various pronunciations of Unesprechlichen Colton, is actually spelled incorrectly, and it should be, it shouldn't have the N on the end of Unesprechlichen or the N on the end of cult. Hmm. Or, or culte. This is or where we go however, pronunciation again, don't the we? German yeah. pronunciation of that would go. Yes, we're, we're, we're getting it wrong again. We're just making it we're worse just, for ourselves. Yeah, we are. We're, we're digging a deeper hole here. We'll yeah. stick to written text. But at least it's, at least it's um, Howard's hole rather than our hole. <laughs> <laughs> context. <laughs> context saved you there, Matt. Yeah. <laughs> Not a correction this time. Daniel Carroll linked us to his blog, Brawl of Cthulhu, where I'm going through all the monsters of, Mal of the Malus Monstorum. I'm up to a count of 104 so far, with more being added all the time. Yeah, so we'll link to this in the show notes, but it's a great resource. If, if you want to go in there and kind of drill down into some of these monsters and get a bit more information and background on them, uh, yeah, Daniel's done a fantastic job on this. Mm. And Scott, you had something arrive through the post this week, and not just a copy of Two-Headed Serpent. Oh, yes. But also a letter, right? A handwritten letter. Yes, yeah, we had a letter uh, from Trevor Hurst, uh, who, um, yeah, wrote us a, a fantastic, uh, fairly lengthy letter, um, which was an absolute delight to read. So thank you, Trevor, and made some really interesting suggestions in it. Audiobooks are scenario compilations. On the back of the World of Darkness episode, he talks about uh, you know the fact that he has the same problem as I do of, of being sort of not intimidated by, but at least finding it difficult to get into large, heavy gaming texts uh, now. And as a podcast listener, he finds it much easier to kind of absorb stuff uh, that's in a spoken form. And so he did actually suggest that perhaps we should start doing audiobooks of scenarios. An intriguing idea. Mm. It certainly helped with me on lengthy car journeys. Yeah, I mean, it's something we will give some thought to. It's not something that had ever occurred to me before. I mean, obviously, you know, there's sort of a grey area there in that you've got actual play recordings out there. And also the H.P. Lovecraft Historical Society have started doing some of their radio dramas inspired by Call of Cthulhu campaigns. Uh, so they've recently released The Day of the Beast. Mm-hmm. And I believe there may be another one in the works. Bum, bum, bum. And finally, we have a new iTunes review, which hey. we're always pleased to get. This one from Paul Lawrence, entitled Blue Oyster Cultists or Something Similar. In ancient times, hundreds of years before the dawn of history, lived a strange group of people, the good friends. No one knows who they were or what they were doing. That makes three of us. <laughs> but their legacy remains hewn in the non-Euclidean geometry of iTunes. Good friends! Where the Dorwoods dwell, where the Frickers live, and they do live well, good friends. 
where they scrubbed down old Haboth and the Sanderson's dance to the pipes of Azathoth. You, you didn't sing that, though. I mean, you, you don't know what this is. I was thinking it was from Subhuman. Uh, that was what I was thinking it came no, from. No, oh, no, no, this isn't Blue Oyster Cult. This then is, the title's the, misleading! Yeah, this is Spinal Tap. Is it? Oh, uh, yeah, I know. Th- 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 it's, it's Stonehenge. Oh, oh. No, I wouldn't have got that in a million years. Oh, right, yeah, yeah. <laughs> but yes, thank you very much, Paul. Uh, and if any of the rest of you uh, feel moved to give us a review on iTunes, we would be absolutely delighted. I mean, not only is it great for our egos if you say nice things about us, but it seems to make a huge difference to our ranking in iTunes if we get good reviews in there and and a number of reviews. And it makes it easier for other people to find the podcast after that. So, you know, if you had the time and the inclination to say something about us, uh, we would be ever so grateful. And as well as iTunes reviews, you can find us on Facebook, Google Plus, and Twitter. And of course on blasphemousterms.com. Just to wrap things up then, what are some of the best and most memorable NPCs we've encountered in games? I was tied between two choices. One of them wasn't quite an NPC because it was just my knee that kept talking to me. Yeah, looking at you, Scott. <laughs> well, it didn't even talk. It just laughed, didn't it? Yeah, I, I spent most of the time talking, trying to get my knee to tell me the secrets of the universe, and it never did, so I ended up showing the fucker back up again. <laughs> yeah, I mean, just, uh, to, just to set the scene for this, this was an ongoing cult campaign, and at some point, Matt's character had been shot in the leg, and this supernatural entity in a different dimension had ended up being convinced to do some first aid on him, and had sewn up the wound... And a little while later, the wound started itching. And so you picked the stitches out, and instead of it having healed up, you found this this new orifice <laughs> in your leg. My laughing mouth. <laughs> uh, which was, yes, yeah, this, this little sharp-toothed mouth that you could feed stuff into. And every time that you let, it, uh, let, let its lips open, it would just laugh maniacally at you. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I tried to get the secrets of the universe out of it. The bloody thing just laughed at me. Oh, well. But no, the, the actual proper full NPC, mainly for its breadth, uh, breadth of hilarity and, frankly, somewhat comical and yet disturbing vocal noises that he put along to it, is going to be Scott's Blood Monkey. <laughs> Do you want to explain that one, then? <laughs> oh, this is that was from Spirit of the Century, yes. wasn't it? Yeah. Uh, where it was a very tongue-in-cheek approach to the mythos. And uh, everything from having like a ghoul bride to uh, I think did was it Louisa who punched out the Arthur Tepe that yes. one? Yeah. Yes. Yeah, to, to having gods punched in the face. Um there was the blood monkey. And uh, I, I They they yeah. were basically <laughs> like little capuchin monkeys except without any skin or fur. <laughs> just these kind of pulpy masses. And there were loads of them. They just kind of run around causing chaos and leaving trails of gore behind them. Yeah, they're so cute. <laughs> uh, but yes, yeah, yeah. I, I just seem to remember having a lot of fun making sound effects every time they came into play. Mm-hmm. And then causing us more shit to deal with, yeah. <laughs> well, that's that's definitely the one, that's, uh, the one that sticks in there for me. Um... The one that sticks in mind for me, uh, I, I remember a long time back, you ran a playtest of a scenario that someone else had written uh, that was in Cthulhu Britannica. Um, sorry, I say you, I'm looking at Paul, um, which was King. Oh, right. And there was um, there's an NPC in it who you meet towards the end who's something of an eccentric 
Um, and you did a very good job of playing up the eccentric mannerisms. But I remember that you had one of your misguided attempts at trying to do an accent here, which added a degree of weirdness to the whole thing. And for those of you who haven't played with Paul before, I've pointed this out to him several times. I'm still not quite sure he believes me. Whenever Paul does an accent, he does hand gestures that go with it that seem to vary according to the accent. So, for example, a few times when I've seen him try to do Glaswegian accents, it always seems to involve a lot of uppercuts. <laughs> or headbutting, I would have thought, would have been another, another one. No, no, it is always uppercuts. I, yeah, I, I'm not saying why, I'm not saying it's thematically linked, I'm just saying there will be uppercuts. <laughs> But, I can't account for that. I'm sorry. <laughs> but this time, yeah, it, it's it's like um, your your hands became these two uh, speed fueled hummingbirds just whizzing around the room. <laughs> oh, really? Uh, okay. And uh, while he was speaking very very fast and maniacally in this offensive caricature of an accent, and I I I, I think it made the character not real, but certainly. Um, it made engaging with it an absolute pleasure because it was just such a weird confluence of, of uh, you know, different factors that it made the whole thing into something, yeah, exactly as weird as it needed to be. I think a good NPC can bring the game to life, really. I played a game at Gen Con a couple of years back with a keeper and the game was, you know, it was it was perfectly decent. But it was fairly a standard Call of Cthulhu game, you know, quite fun. The thing that really brought it to life was the GM was just really good at doing uh, NPCs. And I think it was partly the accent, the way he played them. He was very animated. They were fun to interact with. And that just lifted the whole game, really. It just mm. it, it lifted the game from a fairly, you know, so-so standard game to quite a bit of fun. Were there any specific things that he did that you can you pick up on that, that brought these NPCs to life? As I recall, he spent quite a while talking in character in their voice. He did some accents, he did some mannerisms, he could, did good descriptions. And he really let himself get into character with them, I think. Mm. That was the thing. When you were talking to them, you were really kind of talking to them rather than him sort of saying, oh, yeah, and you ask him this and he says that uh, you should maybe look down the mine. He'd really kind of, you know, allow himself to get into the role. Because it's a role-playing game. And so often the player characters in the game, as players, we talk to each other, but... Often there's not a lot of actual in-character play between player characters. Yeah, that's true. Often it's directed to the GM. So I think, you know, the more the GM can actually play a character or a, a small cast of characters, the better. The more, the more role-playing there is then in the game. That's my two cents worth. Well, folks, I think it's time to wrap up, but maybe we should try and extend our abilities So, it's a good night from me. God. <laughs> Including the uppercut. <laughs> oh, sorry. <laughs> and it's a... <laughs> from me. And it's a farewell from me. Blasphemous Tomes.com
I'll do that a little further from the mic. <laughs> How about that, man? <laughs> 